Melissa Guller, welcome to For the Love of Podcast. Huge thank you for having me. So excited to be here and see how thoroughly you have stalked me on the internet. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about our love of stalking our guests. And yes, I do, in fact, love research. You know what's so cool about it is you get to learn while you get to prepare and find out things that you didn't know about another human being. And and really, I to me, that's one of the most beautiful parts of podcasting. So I'm excited to dig in and talk all about your journey. You know, you, your first podcast, as you know, was called Figuring It Out. And to your own admission, it was a bit of an ironic title. And so my Very question so. is, <laughs> what did you figure out along that journey? I think... It was a fitting name at the time because when I started podcasting, that initial show was all about discovering how a lot of millennials were approaching careers, dating. And so I wanted a title that could fit a lot of things under a wide umbrella. And that show ran for 30 episodes. It's definitely not in production anymore. And the biggest thing I figured out by the end is that I kind of picked the wrong topic to start with. And I don't regret that podcast at all because I learned a lot about how to produce a show, how to use a microphone, how to interview guests. And I think all of that put together was completely worth it. But for me, some big takeaways were that, first of all, I didn't really know how to target millennials. Like that was my ideal listener for the show. People who were just you know curious about the same things that I was wondering about. But if you try to think like a marketer and you try to get out there and ask, where are the millennials? It's so broad. And I found that that was really hard when it came to building an audience. I felt like I had pretty good word of mouth, but then just trying to be a little more intentional, it didn't quite fit. And then the bigger problem is that I didn't really want to be known as millennial girl. That wasn't Mm. something I wanted to be seen as an authority in. And it just kind of begged the question, like, where does this podcast fit in my bigger goals? And the answer was nowhere. And I changed things up. So. I reached out to a friend. We started Booksmart, which was a co-hosted show about personal development books. And that one was totally different. It was not for money. It was really just to share something that we loved to do something together. And that, I mean, don't tell all my other podcasts. That one's still my favorite because it was just so enjoyable to record. I'm trying to coerce coerce my co-host maybe into doing a few more episodes. And I think it showed in the listener accounts. I mean, that Mm. podcast grew organically stronger than any of my other shows because people loved it and told friends about it. So again, I learned a lot from that first show and continue to learn more over the too many perhaps podcasts that I've started. But yeah, the title, Figuring It Out, just gets more ironic with time. (laughs) Well, what I love is that you're, one, it helped you as a training ground. It laid the foundation for everything you've done since. So to your point, no sense regretting it. It happened for a reason. It may not have been the right topic. It may not have been the the thing that you wanted to do long term, but it served its purpose. One thing I found interesting about your story is that like many podcasters, you didn't do it right away. You wrote down at some point, hey, I want to start a podcast. That was probably two or three years before you actually started it. So why did it take so long? And then what finally gave you the courage to say, okay, I'm going to do this thing? actually found this is true with so many of my students now. Like I teach people how to launch podcasts and so many of them say, I've been thinking about this for a year. One woman today, she said since 2017, she's been thinking about it. And I think a few things hold people back. For me, at the time, it was the tech. In 2021, the technology is so much friendlier than when I started thinking about it pretty close to 
a decade, well over like seven or eight years ago. And that was intimidating to me. But honestly, it was a lot deeper than the tech. I mostly just did not want to put myself out there. I'm a pretty private person. And I did not love the idea of people knowing things about my life. Even knowing that you researched me as thoroughly as you did before the show, I was like, oh, cringe. Like, what did he find? Not because there's anything <laughs> out there. I just was so used to kind of keeping my life separate from my work. And the thought of being the voice of a podcast was intimidating. And I love to teach. That's my favorite thing to do. I was an in-person instructor before having my online business. And podcasting is so much different from that. And the thing that finally tipped me over the edge of deciding to just go for it was just the realization that I couldn't read myself into being a podcaster. Like I love to read. I love to learn. But until you actually start recording and putting out episodes, you'll never really know what it's like. You'll never be able to, cheesy as it sounds, like find your voice and find your style. So I think that if you go into the podcast trying to think that you have the plan figured out from episode one and that every episode is going to look like episode one, you're going to set yourself up for failure. Instead, if you go into it thinking, I'm new at this, I know the first episode's probably not going to sound exactly how I want, but I'm going to keep going you'll figure it out over time. I didn't even mean to say that. That was like an honest to God mistake that I just said that right there. <laughs> it's so funny too, because when you think about how we evolve, I think so much, so many times in life, we assume that our first version should be as good as our 10th uh, for some reason. And that's just not the case, right? I mean, when I interviewed, interviewed Harry Duran, he, he said a great thing. He said, your, your 10th episode will be better than your first, your 50th will be better than your 10th, and your 100th will be better than your 50th. And you need to get there though so that you can see that to be true. And with anything you do in life, whether it's podcasting, whether it's you being on YouTube, which by the way, we have that in common. I know you're considering taking the, the YouTube plunge. I listened to your episode from today as well. So I was like, wow, this is like the perfect, thank you, by the way, that was for me, right? Your episode you released today I already had done a bunch of research, but then the episode today, I was like, oh, wow, this is like a goldmine for someone like me. You love learning. You love teaching. You spent four years at Teachable. You're the marketing director there. You didn't, you know, like me, uh, I had a great job at Tesla, but you didn't necessarily, you wanted to go out on your own, but you liked your job at the same time. So what did you learn at Teachable? Give us some of the, some of the nuggets of wisdom, because obviously your podcast there was I'm sure a big piece of just learning from other people that are creating courses and doing things proactively as online business owners, uh, and then being a part of the, a company that's a, a a really great company that's empowering people. What are some of the biggest insights or nuggets of learning that you gained there? So many. I feel so lucky to have worked at Teachable. Like when I was approached by the CEO for the job opportunity, it really was a dream job to be behind the scenes with the software that was enabling more business owners to earn money doing work that they really enjoyed was something that I never took lightly. And by far the most rewarding part of the job was getting to help creators. And I joined when Teachable only had 35 people. And when I left, they had 200. So it's grown so much over the four years that I was there. And when I first joined, I had this like ninja made up title, head of special projects. It's about as startup <laughs> as it comes. But I got to do a lot of different projects with different parts of the company and with creators. Like I created all the training materials for Teachable U to teach people how to create their courses. And to do that, I got to interview and talk with a lot of creators. And just over the years, I got to meet all kinds of people 
teaching the handpan, this instrument that looks like a UFO I had never heard of, to teaching watercolor painting and drone flying, just absolutely anything. And to me, the reason why I pitched the podcast actually at Teachable was because I felt like not enough people could see examples of what it looked like to share your knowledge online and earn money doing it. I mean, the pandemic has changed things. I think people see a little bit more into the world of running a fully online business without any physical Mm -hmm. goods. And even two years ago, it was not as common. I've joked for my whole career. My grandma has never known what I did for work, but she knew (laughs) it let me live in Brooklyn, so it couldn't have been too bad. Um, But with the podcast, I really hoped to showcase really diverse creators, diverse in where they lived all over the world, their age, their expertise, and just show off the fact that you really can earn a living doing this. And it was really humbling to be the host of that show and to get to meet with all of those very wise, but quirky and very different creators doing all kinds of things. So yeah, I really loved the job. And I think helping people see what's possible was the biggest benefit that that podcast could give people. And it's evolving so quickly to your point. Two years ago is a very different landscape than what exists today. Mm-hmm. And two years from now will be very different than today. And uh, it's just, it's amazing to watch and witness this digital revolution that's happening, this information, ability to use information as a, as a good, to empower people's lives. One thing that I, I love, uh, would love to know more about, which I don't know too much in my research, I understand that you worked closely with Ramit Sethi, who's the author of I Will Teach You to Be Rich. So what, what, what did you do with him? Are you still working with him? And maybe what are some of the things that you gained? Because I've, I've followed him and he's doing he's done some amazing work as well. Yeah, I worked for him full time for about a year and a half before I joined Teachable. So admittedly, Teachable uh, poached me from Ramit. And at the time, I was the head of his launch team. So Ramit has really wonderful online programs at the time. I can't really speak to his programs now just because I'm not sure. His business has evolved as so many have, and I haven't worked for him for years. But we had courses that helped people book their dream job or launch their own business. And we were doing 18 campaigns a year, so more than one a month. And remotely, 50 of us were all working together before we all had the more modern version of being forced to do that. Like this was at a time in, (laughs) you know, people were working in regular jobs and I was just working at home in my studio apartment. But what was fascinating about working for Ramit's company is that you really got an insight into not only how he was structuring his courses, how he was helping people achieve an outcome, but also how he was marketing everything. And the copywriters that I met working at Ramit's company are some of the most fascinating people to talk to Because you may think that copywriting is about words, but really it's about understanding people. And the Mm -hmm. way that they thought and analyzed what they should say in different places and what people might be feeling and what they should say to meet them at those feelings was insane. I feel like I really opened my mind to the psychology behind being an online business owner. So working for Ramit was, I think, a real pleasure, especially in getting to meet all of the other people who worked for him alongside him. And I reported to him for a bit, not the whole time I was there, but I really respect a lot of what Ramit has done to build up his company. And in a lot of ways, I think he was a bit ahead of his time. But what I'll Mm -hmm. also say is that we've talked about things changing. The strategies that we were using at Ramit's company in 2016 would not hold up today. Some of them maybe, but I think a lot of online business, marketing, podcasting, it's evolving really quickly. And that's why I think it's more important to just keep trying new things than to figure it out on your first try, kind of like we were talking about before. 
Yeah, well, so the word you said right there, psychology says it all, right? Uh, and and even though the the approaches might have changed, human beings are still human beings, and the psychology and the lessons that you learned as a result of that laid a foundation. And Melissa, as you know, there there are no accidents, right? You've set yourself up in position after position to learn so much, which added so much value to your life. And now, with all of that experience under your belt, you're able to apply it in your own business. And so I want to get into your business in a minute. I want to talk extensively about all the different ways that you've been marketing and promoting and really allowing yourself to thrive and helping your clients thrive. Before we do, I do want to talk a little bit about your podcast. Specifically, let's talk first about Book Smart. So I want to talk about having a co-host because that's something I haven't explored very much on this show. You smile. So tell me what's, <laughs> what's that like, A? And then B, what advice do you have for anybody that is either thinking of having a co-host or maybe they already have a co-host? That was my favorite podcast, which I kind of teased before. And it was because I had M, my co-host. As a fun fact, which you may have gotten into in your uh, stalking, I met M because I cold emailed her to be a guest on Figuring It Out. I didn't know her. And I wanted her to come on the show. And as soon as we met and we did record that interview in person, Right afterwards, we both had this feeling of, I think you're my people. Like, I think that we're going to be friends. And we got dinner afterwards and we stayed in touch. And then as the podcast evolved, we kept in touch a little bit. And when I knew I wanted to shift gears, I thought about how I loved books and how the whole point of the desire for the podcast was that I didn't have anybody in my life to talk about personal development books with. But I knew that she liked it too. And so having a co-host, I think, is a huge like addition of fun to podcasting because you have somebody else in it to banter. And it's very different from interviewing because you both come to the table with your own point of view and it's more of a mm -hmm. conversation. And what Em and I would do is we would both read the book. We would prepare our own notes and we didn't share the notes with each other. We did a little bit of a scripted intro and outro. So we had some elements that we did prepare together. But for the most part, we came in cold and that way, the reactions that we had about the book were natural because we didn't know what the other person was going to bring to the table. And I think that it was the relationship that Em and I had that made the podcast successful. And even today, that podcast is still getting thousands of downloads per month, even though we haven't done anything in years. Because to me, that podcast really shows the value of like evergreen content. Those books are still mm -hmm. relevant. People are still reading the books and finding the places where they've been promoted. But when it comes to having a co-host specifically, I think the pros are that it's fun to have a conversation with somebody who has the same interests as you. Also, you get to split the workload. I don't love writing show notes. M, bless her heart, is a copywriter. And she was like, Melissa, I, all I want to do is the show notes. And I was like, perfect. All I want to do is the editing. <laughs> so That's like the perfect, we were able to divide and conquer. <laughs> exactly. And I think something that is maybe on the cons end of the spectrum is that you do have to be a little more intentional about who does what, who pays for things. You have to get things in writing. I can't stress enough how much I would recommend getting a written agreement with your co-host because you might not think it's going to blow up, but maybe your podcast does get really successful. Who earns the money? Who pays the money? Who owns the trademark? Like all of those are things that you should go into it knowing because just like any relationship, if you are not on the same page, it's going to cause issues later on. But since Em and I had great communication and great banter, it was so much fun. And we learned a lot and people really loved it. So I would endorse having a co-host for sure. I think it's nice to not feel like you're in it alone. 
Well, uh, first of all, I love the title. I love the concept. I love that you did it as a co-host type of production. And I think those are solid bits of wisdom and advice to anyone who's thinking of considering, you know, doing this, having a co-host. It's it's spot on, right? Because you want to make sure that everything is worked out before it ever becomes even remote to being a problem. So you have this experience with Booksmart. You have this experience with figuring it out. You have this experience with, you know, Remit, Remit, and then you start your new show. Um, and, and actually, I should say you start, you, you pitch the show, uh, Everything is Teachable. What do you apply from your lessons that you've been learning to that show? What, what did you do differently on that podcast that you had learned from the other podcasts? By then I had produced, I think we were 30 plus 20 episodes in from the other two podcasts. So I'm 50 episodes into podcasting at this point. And the biggest skill I took from figuring it out was how to interview. Because despite all my teaching experience, interviewing is just so different. And I really believe the way to be a good interviewer, similar to what we chatted about before, you really have to get to know the guest. Because if you come in and you ask them all the same questions they've heard and things that somebody could Google about them, it feels like you're wasting an opportunity to really mm. provide value to the listener. So I do think I heard you say this in one of your episodes. It's a sign of respect to do mm -hmm. the work and come in prepared to ask them open-ended, thoughtful questions and really take a peek behind the scenes into, in my case, not just their course business, but also their passions. Like how did they develop the skill that led to them having the course business? And for a lot of those guests, they usually just talk about their expertise. Like they talk about, watercolors. They talk about marketing. They talk about the thing that they do, but not how they learned the skill or why they started the business. So I think for a lot of them, it was a fun podcast to be a guest on. And you also learn very quickly that you really want to make the guest the star. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but you want them to want to share the episode. And the best way to do that is to really spotlight who they are and what they're about. And that'll be different for different shows. But a lot of those skills around what it takes to produce an episode, all the steps that go into it, the processes I was using, the interview skills, all those led up to Teachable's podcast. And then I also had a background in marketing at that point. And when it came to launching, I don't think that that hurt either. No, not not at all. And I'm glad that you brought up the respect part. I certainly can't take credit for that. Like most things, it was learned. I have a friend, Mason from Clubhouse, who says, research equals respect. And I, I think it's so true that what you said about like, if somebody could Google something, like you're wasting an opportunity and I'm so with you on that. Like go past the surface level, go back the, go past the boilerplate responses. How do you get to something with more substance, more meat to it? So let's talk a little bit about, okay, so now you're in this company-based podcast. How does that type of podcast differ from something that you're doing on your own or even doing with a co-host? The biggest difference with Teachable's show is the fact that finding guests was never an issue. And let me first say, I think for a lot of newer hosts, people worry about finding guests for your show. Let me be the first to tell you, people will line up for you. It's just a matter mm. of time. There are way more people who want to be guests than hosts. But with Teachable specifically, because we were featuring our own community members, I felt a lot of pressure to, in a good way, choose very different guests. And so it wasn't so much about who do I pitch or how do I find the next person? It was a lot of really thoughtful research to figure out who to pitch because nobody declined. So mm. that was a much different approach. I knew I was going into it and giving people a platform and an opportunity. 
So I really felt, you know, with that power came a lot of responsibility to make sure that I wasn't just featuring people who all looked, sounded, or talked in the same way. Well, that's a really important distinction. Now you're able to be more selective. You're able to curate your guest lineup in a much more meaningful way. You have more discretion and more, hey, I could say no to this person. So what goes into that decision-making? How do you, or at least how did you decide for that show who you would have as a guest and who you wouldn't? First, I would look through content and see their courses. Obviously, working at Teachable, I had admin power to see people's course curriculum. And it was important to me, not that we were spotlighting biggest creators. Of course, we brought on a few bigger names. But people who, if you were to purchase their product, I would feel confident knowing that they had really put a lot of effort and energy into making it a good experience for their students, whether it was a $19 course or a $1,900 course. So Mm -hmm. I would always check out the curriculum. And honestly, that gave me a lot of good insights into some questions to ask too. So it served me there. But then I made sure I had people of all different ages all across the globe. We had people of all different genders, people of different races. Like These were all just so important to me that when somebody tuned into the podcast, somebody looked like them because I didn't think that we were getting enough representation at the time. And Teachable does a really good job of putting that at the forefront and making sure that it's not just a bunch of white, like frankly, white men in tech, white millennial men in tech. <laughs> like that's a big stereotype. I totally so get I think, it. yeah. And Teachable knows that it's an ongoing work to do. It's not something that's ever done, but I felt like I really needed to prioritize who I chose to be on the show. So I think actually age is one that not enough people are thinking about. I certainly wasn't thinking about it enough in the first season, but a lot of people who are extremely qualified to create their own courses or to have a podcast for that matter are not millennials. And this concept is so new to them. But if they don't see themselves on Teachable's website and in the podcast, it's harder to know that that's possible. So I I think that that's an element of diversity that I hope more online businesses and creators start thinking about too. Oh, what what a great point. And I, I it's funny that you bring this topic up because I was actually just, I was looking at my, I have another show inside out. I was looking at my last like 10 guests and same thing with this show. With with this show, I actually had one of my uh, listeners uh, reach out to me and super complimentary, you know, love the show, blah, blah, blah. But she called me out. She goes, you can have more women on the show. And this is a while back because at the time it was like old white dude, old white dude, <laughs> middle-aged white dude. It was just like not diverse. And I'm glad you brought up the age piece because I think that's really important. I'm happy to say that when I'm looking at my lineup, especially Inside Out and this one for that matter, but I've been doing more solo casts, is it's more diverse, more women, just more diversity overall. And, and not just diversity, you know, of you know, ethnicity or sex or age, but diversity of thought and experience too. So I think getting that widespread uh, diversity is super, super critical. So what a fantastic point. Let's Let's dive into Wit and Wire. So now you have this company, Wit and Wire, which is now a podcast as well. Uh, what made you decide to start the podcast? Because obviously you have the company, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to start the podcast as well. I know you have 40 episodes. I think believe you just uh, dropped your 40th episode. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to do that show. Honestly, I was not excited about launching Wit and Wire's podcast, and I didn't do it for nearly a year after starting the business because I already had other podcasts that were active. And the reason why I started it was twofold. One was that I kind of felt like I had to. Like, who is this podcast girl talking about podcasting? Her business doesn't have a podcast. 
is she a fraud? Like I definitely felt a little bit of pressure, (laughs) but I also knew that people who wanted to start podcasts were podcast listeners and kind of in the same way that with everything is teachable, I wanted to bring women onto the show. You mentioned fittingly that it was a lot of men at the time when I started my business. Not that there weren't women in podcasting, but it felt like there were more white Mm -hmm. dudes talking about, about podcasting than anyone else. So I wanted to bring on moms, grandmas, women in tech. Like I wanted to bring on all types of women to spotlight the way that they had built up their podcasts in all different genres. And then for season two, I decided to change it up and talk to mostly marketing experts to see how they could apply their expertise to podcasting. So the thing with Wit & Wire's podcast that I have really enjoyed is kind of treating it almost as a playground of ideas. Like within season one, I decided I was going to do a five-episode series where I did one episode in every format. Solo, co-hosted, I brought M on a panel, an interview, and then a narrative, which I'd never done before and took me like 30 hours to make an 18-minute podcast. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing that you can do no matter what you're up to in podcasting. You don't have to just strictly do the exact same thing every episode. But that was the main reason I started it. I knew I wanted to still talk to my ideal students. I wanted to try a few things out with the podcast. And frankly, I wanted to prove that I could hack it. I wanted to prove that I could build a podcast audience from scratch in my own business without Teachable's name, without any of that. And I'll be interested to see where it goes in the future. But I definitely think for the 40 episodes that have been put out, I've learned a lot and been able to help students a lot too. I love that you test and that you're you're using it as your playground. I want to go deeper here. What What else have you learned? And it makes sense, right? Trying different formats, different structures. What else have you tested? What mistakes have you made? Or what learnings have you had that, you know, you're, okay, I, I tested and it, and it worked out favorably. So I'm going to do more of that. Yeah, it's funny. I change things up so often in my business. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been successful is I just see things as learnings. Like if I'm asked about the mistakes, I kind of have to think about it because not everything went well at all. I can easily think of some sales strategies that totally bombed. But with the podcast, I was just consistently testing out even things like tweaking my workflow. Like how do I save time? How can I be more efficient? When it comes to the format and the scripting, what is the order of audio segments that feels right to me? Doing the narrative, honestly, is something that I had wanted to do for a long time. Because if I had endless time and money, I would probably do a narrative style podcast because that's what I enjoy tuning into and hearing. But oh my God, who has the time? Like truly, that is something you have to be all in on to do a narrative style. But other than that, one of my favorite things to do in podcasting is actually the scoring and finding the music. And talk about something I cringe on. When I listen to early podcast episodes and some of the scoring and editing decisions I made, it's so bad. Like who picked this song? Who thought that this sounded fine? It does not sound good at all. But now that's something that I really like to explore is kind of setting the tone of different episodes. And even now, because I mentioned the format series, I can't stress enough how choosing a format for your podcast is something I think you should try because going solo is so different from interviewing, so different from co-hosting. And if you tried one, you could write off podcasting altogether if you didn't like that one format. But I really think that they're entirely different experiences. Like going solo, and I know that you've done a few yourself, Is it's such a different preparation. It's a very different experience to just basically talk alone in a room at a microphone and trust that somebody's going to hear you later. It feels so different from having an interview. So I think playing around with the format is maybe the biggest thing I would recommend to listeners. 
Oh man, I'm so with you on that. And I think you, you, uh, by doing that, you're going to, maybe you find one that you like even more than what you've been mm-hmm. doing, or maybe you eliminate doing something in the future because you absolutely hate it. I do think it's really important to find what you like doing. I actually love finding the music too. Yeah. It's so funny because recently I, uh, I'm playing around with my intros. I'm like, I'm all over the map on what I want to do for this show and the other show. I've even done some no intro, no outro. Like, I'm just like, whatever. I'm just trying different things. But now we, we talked briefly about YouTube. I set up a, a little teleprompter mainly so that I could look at the camera or look in the eyes of the guest, which is looking into the lens because I have a, you know, I have it set up separately with the Zoom. And the, the point being is you got to test different things. You got to try different things, see what is going to get you most excited. Because I think at the end of the day, in order to be sustainable as a podcaster and not pod fade, you got to like doing it and you got to want to show up even when it's not fun, even when it's not the most glamorous thing or part of the thing that you, you know, all the different things you could do. You may not like parts of it. I also am not a big fan of show notes. So it's like, I found, you know, people to help me with that. And so just figure out how to outsource the things that you don't love doing. So you can do more of the things that you do love doing. Another interesting approach that you have taken with Wit and Wire is a season approach. Uh, So you did two 20 episode seasons. Why did you decide to take that approach and give us a, I mean, I've had, I've had some guests that are all in on seasons and I've had other guests that it said, you know, no, never do seasons. So curious what your, uh, what your take on it is. Yeah, we can talk about seasons. And I made what felt a little controversial at the time, but I made a decision to go bi-weekly on my podcast halfway through the season with basically no fanfare. I just changed my mind halfway through. So when it came to seasons, the biggest reason why I knew I was only going to do the 20 episode seasons is because I have a whole business going on and I knew I would want to focus on other parts of the business. So for me, going off season right now after season two has just wrapped is all about focusing on my core programs, doing some updates now that Apple has just gone absolutely to town with all of their new releases in 2021. And I want to spend time and energy being creative in other parts of my business and putting my focus there. And I think if for me, I were to release episodes every week of the year, it would start to feel like a chore. It would start to feel a little bit overwhelming, even though I like it. And so taking a break, I think is just healthy for me. It's nice to step away from something. And I have found also that when I take a break and come back, usually it lets me reset mentally on some of the ideas I liked from the previous season or what I might want to do differently the next season. From a marketing perspective, it also gives you an opportunity to create a reason to listen. So when a season Mm -hmm. ends, that's a reason to talk about it. When a new season is starting up, then you can build a little bit of hype. You can Mm, have a new launch. It's a lot of the reason why I think television shows also have seasons. Because if you think about TV, your favorite sitcom could run year round, but they don't. Mm. And obviously, there's a lot of shows to squeeze in. But I also think it's because they're building up anticipation. A new season is coming out. The season finale is here. I think by creating those moments, you create opportunities for people to get hooked or to become excited about what's coming up next. And if you just do every single week all year long, you're not creating those moments for people. So that's a big reason why I'm a fan of seasons as well. I think you might have just converted me because I've been, so like you, I will admit that I have uh, changed my schedule around and, and, and I won't even be as uh, I didn't go from like weekly to bi- like, like I missed like three weeks at one point. I'm now very regular and consistent and do it weekly, but I've had 
if you look at my dates, it's, it's spotty at, at, at times. But what I'm thinking now for my other show is, and I've been thinking about this for a while, but I haven't been thinking about it from a season's perspective, is I want to do, like, for example, I want to do one that's just on mindset. Like, I want to do a series on mindset. So maybe I do five, seven, 10 episodes on mindset, and I interview experts in that realm. Or maybe I do it on neuroscience or whatever that is. And then I do, you know, just different topics. And so I think to your point, if you could build anticipation, but also it could also help with procuring guests, right? If you have a, a cool concept in mind, uh, maybe that's another way to, to make, not only are you excited, but you could get other people excited about it as well. Speaking of getting people excited, I'm so excited to spend a bit of time on marketing and promotion, which I know you have a background in marketing. It's a passion of yours. Let's start with Pinterest because this is something that I think a lot of people don't currently use, myself included, that you've been using. How do you do it? What's your approach? What have you found from organic traffic to your podcast or or business because of the work that you do on Pinterest? I love this topic. So I think too often Pinterest gets lumped into the category of social media. But the way I see it, Pinterest is a search engine. People actively go to Pinterest. They search banana bread, and then results come up that they click on to visit a website. That's so fundamentally different from how people treat Instagram, which is just a mindless scroll. And maybe I see something of yours for one second, and then I just move right along to the next. So Pinterest is my top organic traffic source. And I started off by creating blog posts that hinted at the biggest questions I thought podcasters would ask. This was before I had committed to doing the Wit & Wire podcast. And so I would write the post and then pin it on Pinterest. And we can get into that a bit more in a second. But then I did the same thing with episodes. So you've got your episode, you create a graphic that goes with it, you add it to Pinterest. And bloggers have been using this strategy for years. And something that I often do in my own business is that I look to adjacent businesses to see what they're doing. And then I borrow those strategies. Like instead of only looking at what podcasters are doing, I'm looking at bloggers. I look at YouTubers a lot to see what they're doing, to see how that could apply to my business. And in this case, using Pinterest, just slow and steady, I got more traffic to my site. And then on the site, people find that I have a podcast. And so that's another big misconception, I think, about Pinterest is that even aside from Pinterest, all social media, you don't have to only talk about your podcast. You can talk about other elements of your business. You can share specific pieces of your content and then drive people into listening to your podcast. And with Pinterest, another, this is like a deep dive. Pinterest is a whole world. You could do a whole episode. What a lot of people don't realize with Pinterest is that when you schedule your pins, that's what the individual graphics are called, you're supposed to do roughly like 10 to 20 a day, which sounds like a lot. But Pinterest is kind of unique because they don't only want you to share your content. They want you to reshare other people's content. And the reason why that matters is because when you're utilizing the right tools in Pinterest, other people start sharing your content and then they start learning about you because Pinterest encourages sharing. They actually want you to do that because that's how you're seen as a valuable member of the Pinterest community is not by just saying, look at me, look at me all the time. It's by also saying, oh, I think this other person's pin is really great. And so a lot of my pins have gone viral with tens of thousands of repins based on those strategies. And actually within the Tailwind community, which is a tool, Tailwind is the tool I use to schedule all my pins. You can meet other people. I have found some guests through there. Like there's a whole 
secret underworld of Pinterest that could probably be a full episode unto itself. But I would say that for anybody who has content in the realm of online business, of food, fitness, DIY, self-improvement, crafts, there's so much more to Pinterest than I think a lot of people realize. And a lot of marketing studies show that Pinterest users are buyers. They are out there, again, to find that recipe, to find a solution to their problem. And they find it, they go to that person's website, and then they have a solution. So couldn't endorse it more strongly. Hopefully, maybe it's such a brief overview. It's hard to pack Pinterest into just a five-minute clip. Don't pack it. What else? Okay, so I'm fine with exploring this. like let, Because to me, this is like uncharted territory, not only for me, but my listeners. Because we've talked briefly, a couple other people mentioned Pinterest, but nobody did a deep dive. So what what haven't you explored in that brief introduction that would be valuable to know if you had, like if somebody says, give me your five best tips on Pinterest, I guess I'm saying that now, give me your five <laughs> best, best tips on Pinterest, what would they be that you haven't already said? Sure. So the first one is that if your podcast has show notes on your website, which I know most podcasters, many business owners are doing, I would recommend including a pinnable graphic on that page because active Pinterest users will find your episode. Maybe they want to save it for later. Maybe they find it valuable. If you don't have an image on that page, they can't save it to their own Pinterest account. Pinterest users are really savvy. So that's why you see in a lot of blog posts that there's that vertical image because people who are active pinners, they've got a Chrome extension. They save all their favorite stuff. And so that's when you see different people have these blog post counts. So it's been shared. Some of my posts have been shared 2,000 times. That's because they've seen the image on the post, they've reshared it, and now other people on Pinterest can see it too. And that's the network effect of Pinterest is you have to enable your fans to save your content so that more people can find it. So there's tip number one. That's And that's just to clarify, that's on your website or in yes. your show notes? or where That's where, in your where, show notes. So at the bottom sh- of the show okay. notes, or some people use the featured image, if we're getting technical, they'll use a vertical rectangle as a featured image so they don't have to do more than one. But I just put it at the bottom. I put a graphic and I say, pin this. And then active Pinterest users, they'll have a Chrome extension and they just hover over that picture and they pin it. Or they just go up to their browser. They don't even have to use the image. But the thing with Mm. Pinterest is that you can't pin a web page. There has to be Mm. an image on the page because pin equals image plus link. So you have to have something for the Pinterest extension to grab onto. Otherwise, you're missing out on the potential network effects. Like people are familiar with the concept of tweet it. So this is kind of Mm -hmm. similar, right? You're empowering your listener to, instead of clicking a tweet this button, you're empowering them to use a tool they already have in their browser because they pin recipes all day long. And now they can pin your podcast episode to their vision board of their online business, of their watercolor painting, of whatever your expertise is. They want to add your episode to that board. So if you don't have an image, you're missing out. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Let's go to number two. Number two is just understanding what Pinterest considers to be new content. And then we'll do one third one about the communities. So in the like the Pinterest language, they have something called a fresh pin. So if you had that image we talked about before, and it's on episode 10, if you just keep adding that same image to Pinterest over and over, they see right through you. They're like, you've been doing this for a year. This is the same thing. We've been here before. They're not going to promote that very highly in people's feeds. But if you create a new graphic to an existing episode, that combination is now a fresh pin in the eyes of Pinterest. So instead of just continuing to produce great episodes, although I'm sure people will continue to do that, you can also put a new pin up just by making a new graphic to an existing post. 
And that's what I keep doing to put some of my best episodes out there just regularly. Like for example, people always want to know about podcast microphones. So it's in my best interest to make fresh pins that are about the existing episode, which has been Mm. out for over a year at this point, but just with a new graphic. So that saves me a lot of time and energy and thinking, oh gosh, I have to make a whole new episode about this topic I've already covered. Nope. Fresh pin is new graphic plus existing content. Mm, Makes sense. Okay. That's, that's, that's totally um, understandable. They want fresh content. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then tip number three, I want to talk about what tailwind communities means because this underbelly of Pinterest is like totally new for I think most listeners I'm guessing. So maybe people are familiar with social media scheduling tools where instead of just going into Instagram and saying, here's my post, instead you could use a tool that says, okay, this post is going to go out Thursday. This one's going to go out next Wednesday and you can queue things up. Mm -hmm. At its core, that's what Tailwind does. It's the tool that I use that all experts I know in the Pinterest space, we all use the same one. And so yes, you can use it to queue up all of your pins that we've talked about. But more importantly, this is where you can access what they call Tailwind communities. So you can get into Tailwind communities and you can contribute your pins to those communities. And then other people are actively going there to find pins that they can share. So it's basically free promotion. This is not paid at all. On the basic Tailwind plan, I think you can be in five and you can choose. You can say, like, I'm in one that's all about online business owners and one that's all about podcasting. So I put my pins in there. Other people who are interested in that topic see it and then they repin it into their Pinterest board. And that to me is mind blowing because usually you have to pay for that kind of exposure to get in front Mm -hmm. of so many audiences. And I'm using it not only to put my content in front of exactly my ideal people, but I also totally stalk all of those to see, okay, who here has a really compelling title on this pin? Because some of those people I've invited to be podcast guests based explicitly on a specific pin that I thought, wow, that topic would make a great episode of Wind Wire. So to me, there's just so much behind the scenes value in the world of Tailwind and in the world of Pinterest. Wow. What a gold mine. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about another thing that I, I, I've heard you talk about and that is um, newsletters. And you talked about newsletters from a perspective of gaining feedback, but also some of the building blocks that can go into a newsletter. What what advice do you have for anybody that either doesn't have a newsletter currently, or, or maybe they're looking for some ideas or creative things to include in their newsletter that they maybe haven't thought of? What 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 suggestions did you give them? Let me first say that the way that I sell through my business is not usually directly through the podcast. It is through people on my email list who have either joined a free training or they've been on my list through some kind of free resource on my site, or they're a podcast listener and they've become an email subscriber after enjoying my content. And that's where I give all of my best deals about my courses. That's where I share more information. And that's where I feel like I really build relationships with people over time. And yes, it's where I tell them that a new podcast episode has dropped and that I think that they would really love it. And I think people feel intimidated maybe by adding yet another marketing channel. But I I would do email marketing all day over Instagram. And I have a pretty engaged Instagram following, but I don't necessarily make sales directly through Instagram. I make sales through my email list. So when I have my newsletters, I usually do about once a week. But if that sounds like a lot, I really think even biweekly is great. Yes, you can talk about your new episodes, but you can also talk about past content. You can talk about resources and bookmarks you find from around the internet. To me, that's what's really valuable in the newsletters that I like is that they are giving me information that I wouldn't want to seek out otherwise. And I know for a lot of people, 
I'm their podcast person. I'm the one who's telling them what's up with Apple paid subscriptions. What's the deal with Spotify Greenroom? Like I'm the person they're coming to for those kinds of updates. But I'm also the one that they want to learn from about podcast growth strategies, things that are more evergreen. And I think something noteworthy about your email list is that you are so close to your content. You're so close to your podcast, so close to your business. And if you said something two and a half years ago, you think everyone's heard it. But every single day, someone is new to your podcast. So I think you should absolutely include your greatest hits, whether it's you know maybe every six months, you're bringing back that content. Because if somebody joined my list, let's say this week, and last week I talked about microphones, I already know they want to know about microphones. So that's in my onboarding sequence. I get all the good stuff in front of them right away. So I would say there's a difference between how I treat my ongoing emails and my announcements, things that are timely. And then new subscribers, I still want to make sure that within their first three months, they're getting all of my good stuff because Mm. your newest leads are the warmest. They're the ones who recently sought you out for the thing that you talk about. So I think that email marketing can be as simple as sending out an email every other week, but it does not have to be as basic as only announcing that you have a new episode. Right. It makes perfect sense because much like I've been very active on LinkedIn. And one of the things that I realized very quickly is that when I promote, and I use the word promote very intentionally, my podcast, that's exactly how it's perceived is me promoting my podcast, even though it probably has some valuable wisdom and some concepts that are novel that people will appreciate the perception is it's me promoting but if you're giving information that's curated that's really designed to support and add value into the lives of other people in addition to oh yeah and i have this podcast uh, that right there creates a much better user experience and to your point i really like the way you nurture newer people in a different way so i want to i want to talk a little bit about how you build your email list and also any advice you have for Either I know that it's kind of funny that you you talk about, you know, your podcast isn't necessarily the feeder. If anything, it's your business that's the feeder to the podcast. In the in the episode you dropped today, you say your downloads doubled. And the thing that you really attribute it to is that your business plays a major role in people being able to find your podcast. And, And one of the ways people find your business is through paid ads and other things. So how do you build your email list or how do you do Uh, paid advertising. I don't know if they're one and the same. Would be curious to get your insights there. Great question. So since we talked about Pinterest, I will just throw that in the ring and say that people who find me via a pin, they come to my website and they will find opportunities to join my email list, usually by something that's valuable. Like as an example, I have a fun free quiz on my site about finding your podcast host advantage. And no matter what blog post or podcast episode you land on, you're going to see it. Or maybe you'll find my free masterclass about launching a podcast. You're going to find something that you can opt into that truly provides either value or value with a little bit of fun. So that's the way that organically I build my email list is through that. It's also through being a guest on other people's podcasts. Like as a podcast host, I feel like you are even more well-equipped to be a great guest because you have used a microphone before. Like you know how to be on air, you are comfortable talking about your topic, maybe more so than somebody who hasn't been on any podcasts or hosted any podcasts before. So I think that hosts are great guests. Um, But then paid ads is the way that I've built most of my business. And I will say, I know that I was fortunate that I decided I was going to spend... It was not a lot of money at first. It was like $15 a day for a month. I was just kind of testing the waters. And I was driving people to a free masterclass. And at the time, I was a crazy person. I was doing a real live masterclass like every week. 
just because I really wanted the feedback. I wanted to know if it was helpful. I wanted to know if it was a useful way for people to learn about podcasting. And then I did open the opportunity for them to join my program. But even if they didn't buy the first time, that's okay because now they're on my email list. And now I can continue to build the relationship with them where I talk more about podcasting. I talk about industry updates. I just provide real legitimate value. And for a lot of those subscribers, three or six months later, they do end up enrolling in one of my programs or buying services from me because we've had that relationship that's been ongoing. So definitely paid ads are by far the top driver to my email list. But I think what's important about that is that I'm providing something that's valuable upfront and it isn't the podcast. Like I haven't necessarily played a lot with driving paid ads to the podcast episodes. I know some hosts do that. It's something I'd like to try in the future. But instead, I pitch the valuable thing. And then afterwards, I say, hey, now I have a podcast episode for you. I think you'll love this second podcast episode. And then over time, I use the content that I've already created to continue building relationships and trust by educating. Right. Okay. So let's let's dive a little deeper here. I, and, I, and I know we don't need to get into this, but uh, you, you tried Podcast Addict and it wasn't as fruitful as you had hoped. Uh, and, and I know there's, you know, any number of stories you can hear about using uh, podcast platforms. We know podcast listeners listen to podcasts. So conceivably, that's a uh, could be a good method. You tried one. It didn't work. And to your point, what you've really invested in is advertising for your business, which then tangentially can can create some movement toward your podcast. But let's talk about the ad set that converts for your masterclass, for your business. What platforms do you use? What copy or video? Like what's the what's the style of ad that you found works best? And uh, yeah, just curious in that. It's changed so much. I've been running ads for my business for two years, I think, just under two years. And at different points, static graphics have worked now I usually create what looks like a static image, but maybe a small part of it moves because movement really does catch people's eye. Even if mm -hmm. it is just something simple, like I use Canva, I'm not a super fancy designer. And you can have a little underline or something that circles on the screen. Even those small things I found help the ads convert at a higher rate than a static image alone. And in terms of the copy, my, maybe my best marketing advice, not even just for ads, but any social media copy or even the hook of your podcast episode is that people are asking within like one to three seconds, is this for me? And if you waste that real estate by saying, today, I'm going to tell you about this podcast episode. Today, I'm going to tell you about this ad and what's coming up here. You're going to lose them. So mm -hmm. I like to start with a question or something that's kind of not necessarily controversial, but something that might be on their mind. Like one of my ads that converts really well, one of the first lines is about how podcasting has changed a lot in the last 12 months. Because when you see that, your attention is like, oh, well, what has changed about it? And then I talk about the fact that a lot of strategies that used to work are no longer working. And in the masterclass, I'm going to walk through three of the top mistakes that I see a lot of really smart podcast hosts making when it comes to launching their new shows. Because that's a lot more specific than just saying, hey, I have a free class. Do you want to come? So I, I would say that's a tip is just think about what are people curious about? What are things that you believe that not everybody believes or things that are changing in your industry that you could spotlight? And think about curiosity invoking questions that you could kick off your ads with. Yeah. And you don't want to waste any valuable real estate with anything that's unnecessary. People are all about what's in it for me. So as we wind down here, the last things I want to talk about um, is the quiz and any advice you have for that. And then building community uh, because you know, having interaction with your listeners is so valuable. So 
We'd love to know, you know, any insights you have about creating the quiz and about building community for your listeners. The quiz is something I'm really excited about. I just launched this a month ago, so I don't have a ton of data yet. But I had this hunch that when you're a guest on other podcasts or even when you are your own host and you're talking about ways to convert people into email subscribers, sometimes PDFs, downloads, they're kind of boring. Like how many times have you downloaded something from a site and you just don't really look at it? Or on the other hand, maybe it's got a ton of great info, but you weren't really in the mindset of doing any work right now. Like it sounded good. These 10 tips about something sounded great, but then it just kind of goes into your downloads folder to die on your laptop. Sure. Yeah. 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 And so I had this thought that I know other marketers were using quizzes to build their email list. But also what's fun about a quiz is that it is actually fun. Like you can learn a little bit about yourself. So mine is your podcast host advantage. I have a few different outcomes and I didn't want it to be total fluff. I thought it would be fun to look at my students and to figure out what different students had in common because I had started to notice that I was giving different advice to different people based on the goals of their show. And so in my mind, these personas had started to form and I thought that it could be actually beneficial to say, you know, if you are a mentor, then maybe having some solo episodes or finding ways to showcase your expertise could be useful for your podcast. And it's not saying, oh, you have to be a solo podcast host, but just giving some tips on the formats, the monetization or the marketing strategies. I thought that that would be a fun way to deliver value in a personalized way. And then as a marketer, I also ask a question in the quiz. It's just, do you have an active podcast? And that's so helpful for me because now I know are you launching a podcast or are you building one? And that's one of the main ways that I use segmentation in my email list is to cater to those very different points in somebody's podcasting journey. So to me, the quiz hit all the check marks. It was fun. It's quick to do. It gets value to your new subscribers, which builds trust with them, gets them on my email list, gives me information. And it's easy to say in a podcast episode, whether it's yours in the outro or somebody else's if you're a guest. And it's fun. I mean, let's, let's it's be fun. real about it. It's fun, yeah, right? The, I mean, earlier you said, like, if you don't enjoy the podcast, it's not going to last. And I could That's not right. agree with that more. I really believe that the way to have a successful podcast is to choose something that you enjoy and to let the format and the way that it comes out kind of evolve as you go. But if you don't go into it loving the thing that you want to talk about, I think it's going to be an uphill battle from there. And I think it's important to talk more about fun. Like often, obviously, the bottom line is important. Earning money, very important. Happy to talk about money. At the same time, sometimes just doing things because they're enjoyable, because people are going to talk about it, because it only takes a minute of your time. I think that's worthwhile. I don't think that everything has to be so serious in order to be profitable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I found an amazing, I'll have to, I'll have to dig up, you might already know, I found an amazing quiz platform probably six months ago. And it's been on my mind and I haven't executed on it because the program that I was building, I decided to to table that because Clubhouse came and I went all in on Clubhouse. So so I'll, I'll, I'll dig that up and see if you've heard of it. But in closing, going back to this com- idea of community and interacting with your listeners, what ways have you found to be most uh, advantageous when it comes to being able to have two-way communication with your listeners? I will just first say you said the word interact. That is actually the name of the quiz platform I use. If anybody is curious to check it out and build their own quiz. It's called Interact. So that did spark a little pro tip just in case anybody wants to look it up. And to answer your question about community, what I think is so powerful about podcasting today, and you referenced Clubhouse, I think 
that fits right in, is that you can communicate with your listeners in so many ways. And I think it really will make your podcast better if you learn how to listen. Like if you're asking people for their insights, what topics they want to see, I think that's great. I think community is an interesting word these days because it can mean so many different things. Some people refer to their Instagram profile as their community. And I think that in some ways it is because if your podcast episodes kind of guide people, let's say to your Instagram account or your LinkedIn, whatever your main platform is, if you're prompting people to comment on certain posts, I do think you are building a sense of community. And I think that not enough people are using Instagram in that way. They're writing a caption that says, here's the thing I want you to know today. Mm. But instead, maybe try to reframe and say, what's something that you could ask? And I always like to show off the students and the podcasters in my community and to say, you know, what is your winning podcast formula? That's a concept I talk about. What's something that you released recently that you're really proud of? And I want to continue to find more ways to spotlight more of them. So I think in that way, social media could be a community. But on the other hand, I think for some topics, like I have a couple of students who have more serious topics like uh, childhood cancer or things that maybe you don't want to talk about on Instagram. And I think for those podcasts or even something more lighthearted about like a costume drama obsession that you share with other people, having a truer community, whether it's a Facebook group or I use a platform called Circle, those spaces, I think, create a real opportunity for your listeners to connect to each other. And that's where I think podcasting is headed. I think the days of you being a host and you talking to the listener and never hearing from them are not going to be the way of successful Mm -hmm. shows in the future. I think that I'm curious to hear how Clubhouse has been for you. But for me, just building those relationships with students and having them also get to connect with each other or people even within my world of Instagram, like they've met people in the comments who then they've gone on to interview for their own shows. Just the power of connecting those listeners to each other matters a lot because you don't realize how much your listeners have in common until you put them together. (laughs) Like they don't know those other people, even with Booksmart, right? I wanted a co-host to talk about personal development books because nobody I knew wanted to have these nerdy conversations with me. But now imagine all the people who tune into Booksmart, they're probably craving somebody to talk about those books with too. So if you can create a space for that conversation, I think that's really powerful as a host. But I am curious, how has Clubhouse been for you when it comes to building your business and your podcast? Oh, I mean, when I say I went all in, I went all in. (laughs) I I was spending, no joke, last year, 2020, I was spending four to sometimes as much as eight hours on LinkedIn a day, commenting, making posts, like absurd amount of time. I was like, okay, I'm going, I went, and I just transferred that time into clubhouse. So my calendar's full because people are booking time for strategy calls. Uh, guests. I mean, I'm landing guests that I wouldn't even have a chance to meet. Um, connections, opportunities to host rooms. Now, all that being said for the last month, I've been less active because I'm, I'm actually transitioning a lot of my work back to LinkedIn and YouTube. And my business is so busy that I've been having to work on that. So I'm not really as active as I was, but I mean, it's, it's nuts. I mean, I've, I've really rapidly um, built a, a, and it's a true community. Not, not everybody's my community. In other words, like my listeners, but it's a community of like-minded people that I'm getting to know that I'm building rapport with. And some of them are becoming lifelong friends as a result. And so kind of one of the things that I'm doing now is I'm having reoccurring guests for people, guests that I like, uh, people that I've uh, become friends with and I'm having them on my show. 
And it's like, we're creating, it's almost like a co-host. Like if he's on four or five times, my friend Brendan has been on my show four or five times now. And it's, and we knew each other before Clubhouse, but we became a lot closer because of Clubhouse. Now, what I'm curious about is what happens long-term to all of the platforms and how they evolve, green room spaces, you know, whatever Facebook's going to do. And I think Clubhouse will get bought, you know, but whether by LinkedIn or Amazon or Google, whoever buys it, that'll be interesting because I think if they put money into Clubhouse, because it was the early mover and there's a, a pretty strong, loyal community of early users, of which I'm a part of, um, you know, that have considerable following. I have, I have almost 20,000 followers and it's because I put in the time. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, obviously people wouldn't follow me if I didn't do a good job, but I, it was a combination of me showing up, meeting the right people, being in the right rooms and, um, you know, just being who I am. And people want that because you, you can't find somebody else to do clubhouse for you. You can't find a social media manager. It, you got to be there. So, um, it's so far, it's been great. And, uh, the question that I have now is how much of my time should I allocate there versus other platforms? So I, that the jury's still out there. Yeah. Well, and now you're exploring YouTube. So it sounds like you've got a whole new world to get into. Have you already started? Yeah. So I've recorded 40 videos in the last three weeks. And, and so what I've done is I've taken a lot of the content that I created on LinkedIn and I just want to get, get some momentum. And I've converted that into scripts for YouTube. And so, as I said, I have this sort of teleprompter here. And so I, I literally look at the teleprompter and I, I try not to, to read, but just like get a glimpse of it and then just deliver it straight to the camera. And then because I have a, a team um, with Potify, they, they edit my YouTube videos. And then I'm going to make some more what I'll call original content as well. That'll be uh, a kind of more documentary style. I have a film background. So I want to tell stories, visual stories with a documentary style in addition to having like more talking head, me delivering information. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I love hearing you talk about all the things that you're trying and going all in, in different phases of your business. I really think that's what keeps it interesting. Like as a business owner, as a podcaster, it's so much fun to get creative about the kinds of content that you put out. And I just can't stress that enough. I really don't even think many people associate the word creative with being a business owner. But to me, that's the best part. I can try mm. all these strategies. I can try all of these new things. And as a CEO, I'm free to do whatever I want when I need to partner with other people or hire others to make it happen. I can bring on more talented people. And just that creative freedom, I think, is my favorite part of the whole job. So I love hearing people with passion talk about what they're trying to. It's really inspiring. Well, I appreciate that. And I feel the same way about you. And I just got to say, like, I have been wanting to do a YouTube. I mean, I've had my YouTube channel since 2007. I have over a million views, but most of those happened because I made a movie in my 20s and the movie did really well and I got a bunch of views early on in YouTube. Flash forward, now I'm a middle-aged guy, podcaster. Uh, I, I have to figure out like how I, how I reinvent, you know, who I am and my brand. I have, you know, my, my corporate background. I, I have a, you know, a varied background. And so... The cool thing is that even though I like, I've literally want to start a YouTube channel for like three, like to in this new, new version of myself for like the last three years. Finally, I just said, okay, I'm going to, I don't care what this looks like. I'm going to make a million mistakes. I'm just going to like get momentum and like do it. That's why I said, I, I'm actually, my goal is five videos a day, which is audacious, but oh my God. 
five, I know it's crazy, but I can do it because I figured out a system. I literally record all five videos back to back and I send it to my team. So I don't have to do the editing. I just have to deliver the content. I did 365 posts last year on LinkedIn and at least 150 of them can be converted into a YouTube video, which is what I've done. And so that's where I'm going to start. And then once that gets hopefully a little bit of momentum, at least it's, even if it's not momentum and views, it's momentum in me doing it. And then from there, layer in more of the original content. But I'm so with you on just the, the beauty of what we're doing. It sounds like from everything I've learned, like the, we're on very similar paths. I love that you're empowering other people. I learned a ton by doing research. And then of course, having this amazing conversation. So I know that people could go to witandwire.com to find more information. I know, obviously we talked about Pinterest, pinterest.com forward slash witandwire. Same thing with Instagram. Talk a little bit about your courses and a little bit about some of the programs that you offer, how people can get engaged and, and be a part of what you're doing. Yeah. Well, first of all, this has been so much fun. I think getting to meet other hosts is maybe part of the best uh, parts yeah, totally. of my job. So I think this has been great. I'm feeling super behind on my YouTube dreams. So I'm going to go script some stuff right after this call. But if people <laughs> want to learn more about my programs, I have my main signature course right now. It's called the Podcast Launch Accelerator. And it's a self-paced program, but it also includes a student community and weekly live group coaching because I really believe that accountability is a big reason why people don't complete courses. And so if I can provide people not just with the tools to launch a podcast, but also the support to move through the program, see other people who are succeeding, making connections with other podcast hosts, I think that's really where the magic happens. So that's my main program. And if people want to learn more about my philosophy or some of the mistakes I see hosts seeing, hosts making, I should say, or the overall start to finish process, I do have a free masterclass. Is it okay if I share a little bit more? Of course. Yeah. Share away. Yeah. Awesome. So it's called How to Launch a Podcast in 60 Days Without Feeling Overwhelmed. And you can sign up for free at wittenwire.com slash for the love of podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, from the the days where you were, you know, learning and, and growing at Teachable to creating your own podcast, making your your first stab, figuring it out to doing what you could to em embrace the the beautiful thing that is books with your co-host M to now with Wit and Wire. I mean, your story is amazing. Melissa, thank you so much for being on For the Love of Podcast. Thank you. A huge thank you for having me.